0: Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, we're now accepting applications for our Network Catalyst Accelerator program. Founders in our program have gone on to raise money from Lux. Spark, A16Z, Slow, First Round, Sousa, Homebrew, Mavron, Obvious, NFX, Signal Fire, and many more. Learn more and apply at villageglobal.vc slash Catalyst. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests. We're lucky to have Austin Allred back on the program, co-founder and CEO of Lambda School. And we're excited to have Rishi Mandel, of Future uh, on the program for the first time. Uh, guys, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me.
1: What's up, Eric? Good to be here.
0: Rishi, why don't you start with you? Uh, why don't we talk about, why don't you first define what is Future? What, what is the inspiration for, for this podcast today? When you, when you came to me and said, uh, I want to do this episode, I was intrigued. Why don't you unpack the, the story behind it?
1: Yeah, so Future in a nutshell. Um, we designed Future to help the busiest of people be able to lead healthy lives. And the way we do it is we pair you one-to-one Uh, with a world-class coach who trains you remotely using an app and we send you an Apple watch so they can track what you're doing. And the idea is put an expert in your life who, um, you know, in our case, you know, with your fitness tells you what to do, keeps you accountable to doing it. And that's why we send you a device and the rubber hits the road there. They're in your life kind of as a high touch, you know, frequent uh, interaction. And so the idea here, you know, behind future was there's a fallacy of like a routine in today's world, right? We are traveling a lot busier than ever. um, And so to have somebody who can float like uh, with you as your life changes is like really, I think one of the pieces of inspiration. And we just watched what uh, the most successful people do with their health. Uh, You know, a good example is professional athletes. Um, They don't try to manage their health themselves in terms of what they're eating, how they're exercising, sleeping, and so on and so forth. Uh, The natural tendency for those types of people is to build a constellation of experts around them to help them manage you know, those aspects of their health. And so that's what Future does. We really focus on your fitness today, put a coach in your life. And, and obviously, you know, we have um, a lot of things happening in the world today with uh, the coronavirus uh, spreading. I think half of humanity now is on in lockdown, which is uh, probably something that's never happened before. And as more and more people have been sheltering in place and routines have been disrupted, you know, we've seen literally a 10x surge in interest in our service. And, you know, it started to get us thinking about, you know, we've spent the better half of, better part of two, two and a half years, trying to perfect the translation of an in-person relationship to a purely digital relationship. And, you know, there's this obvious thought that now more and more people will engage in those types of things over the next three, 12 months. And some of those things will actually hit escape velocity and become norms. Um, And so, you know, Austin, you know, runs a um, entirely virtual school. Um, and that doesn't even do justice to what they're doing, but, you know, would love to, you know, just trade notes, learn about, you know, when you're taking something that is historically in person, visceral, you know, based on shared experiences and you try to turn it into something that's purely digital, how do you have to get creative? What, what are the counterintuitive things that lead to success? Uh, what are the challenges? You know, whenever you're building anything at scale, you get these emergent weaknesses of the unscalable thing that you were trying to use technology to scale up. How do you compensate for those weaknesses? And then you get these emergent strengths. Now that you know, for example, with future, your coach can just be with you twenty four seven. How do you then amplify those those strengths? And so I thought we'd just kind of get together and kind of chat about you know the variety of industries that might see more virtual um, you know interactions. We were talking Eric about it could be everything from obviously education and health, but also you know, retail, you see digital stylists proliferating as an idea, financial advice, pharmacies, music lessons. You know, the, the world is, uh, you know, possibly going to see a lot of these types of things.
0: Totally. Austin, why don't we start about how you've thought about uh, translating the, the education experience to, totally digitally b- before COVID and then, you know, in, in, in a COVID world and post COVID, uh, how that has sort of uh, changed your business or, or evolved it, or or, or validated it or uh, what's coming to mind for you here?
2: Yeah. So the interesting thing is, you know, we, we've always been entirely online. The school has never had a physical location. Um, and when we started out, we, you know, like most schools kind of, I, I call it the skeuomorphic school of thought. You take exactly what happens in the physical world and you copy paste it online as best as you can one for one. And it's a total disaster, uh, especially in the education space. Like education, the way it's taught in a classroom is not meant for a world where you're one tab away from Netflix at any given time. Um, So we found that you have to really, you know, from first principles, from the ground up, think through things like, you know, who is a student accountable to and how do you know about that accountability when you can't just glance across the room and see what they're doing at any given time. Um, how do you keep a student engaged? Who are they working with? How does the interpersonal interaction play? And I think, unfortunately, as a result of COVID, what we'll see is, uh, you know, about 10 years ago, there was kind of this MOOC movement where everybody put a camera in their lectures to record the lectures and put it online and said, all right, college is free now for everybody. Um, and then we were all surprised to learn that that wasn't a very effective mechanism through which people learn. And I think we're going to experience that kind of, again, as schools that haven't really thought through it from first principles are forced to move online. And, you know, my concern is that people will equate me recording a lecture of myself and putting it on an LMS with, you know, the full experience of online learning. Similarly for Rishi, you know, the analogy might be if someone just, you know, created a workouts app um, and said, all right, now you don't need a personal trainer anymore. It's, it's pretty different.
1: Yeah. You know, Austin, I noticed that you guys, um, where it seems like you really drive an idea of workflow and scheduling for your students. Do, was that something that was inherently built in from the beginning? And, and you, maybe you can tell me a little bit more about how you, how you think about that, but it's like structuring time. Was that like, did that evolve over time or was it, you know, and we used to let people kind of do whatever, or, you know, just talk a little bit about that. Cause I thought that was interesting.
2: So we have found that there is an enormous difference for us between uh, when something happens asynchronously and when something happens synchronously within the school. Um, there are a few studies that show that you know humans just kind of suck, and for some reason, when something is happening in real time, it activates a different part of our brains. And so for, for us, where you know we're not getting paid until a student you know, or we're not making money unless a student gets hired and does really well. We've tried all these asynchronous self-serve things and it's just never worked for us. Um, there has to be both something that happens live and something that kind of personalizes the experience along with what you've done. So we've, we've tried a bunch of self-serve part-time, you know, on your own stuff before and it's it's never worked. Um, And I actually look at future as a model for how asynchronous self-service done really, really well. Um, Shout out to my trainer, Jacob. Um, (laughs) But yeah, it's it's, it's an interesting dynamic that I think we're still just beginning to wrap our minds around. Because even 10 years ago, the thought of, you know, when you moved online, it was all here's a video or here's a download, not like let's have a shared experience. And that shared experience is really interesting.
1: And how does it work for you? Is it students... Sharing experiences with each other is it students to because you talk you hinted a little bit at accountability you know a lot of ways health and education are the same everyone wants it and no one wants to put in the work right <laughs> and you have to sort of create drivers so like is what what is it is it peer to peer is you know and for you it sounds like there's a bit of synchronicity a bit of accountability is that all in the same you know uh, mechanism or is it you're accountable to a tutor and your or like a group leader. And then you're like sharing experiences with, uh, you know, cohort or something.
2: So generally speaking, the, the schedule is, you know, eight hours or four or three hours a day that's full-time or part-time live. So everybody has the same schedule, um, which is more difficult from the logistics aspect of that is difficult. But then when everybody's actually in the same place at the same time, it makes everything else much easier. And so generally speaking, you're working with another student and you're accountable to either a TA or an instructor. So we kind of, for every movement within Lambda School, you're working with someone and you're accountable to someone. Sometimes it's the same person, but oftentimes it's two different people. Hmm. Um, And, you know, where we have a more difficult time is kind of post-graduation when students are off on their own and we're trying to instill that, you know, accountability asynchronously that's something we're not as good at yet and that's why I spend a lot of time trying to reverse engineer how futures doing it cuz i think
1: it's really <laughs> interesting we actually learned interestingly from a couple of education examples you know when we were starting the company like you said it's pretty easy to roll a bunch of workout videos and content and say like self guide yourself and you know similar to moocs it's like 90% of people who start are never going to complete And one of the things that we saw was trying to think of where it was. So I do um, I've learned about myself that I'm a voracious learner, but I do better with, with accountability. So I actually had pattern recognized in my own life that I started a book club mainly to just like get myself to actually like read the thing. And I wanted to learn chess and I started to learn online with someone. It was very clunky. It was like over FaceTime. And what I found was I would get all these assignments. I would not do them. And then every Wednesday, um, and this guy was like, he wasn't, uh, you know, he was pretty highly ranked. Um, so I would, you know, look up to, and, um, every Wednesday we would do a FaceTime and every Tuesday night I would do all of my assignments. Right. And it was like, that's actually okay. Like that. I, I was getting them done it like that. I wasn't doing them over the course of the week was fine. But the fact that I was trying to get them done, cause I didn't want to like then FaceTime with this guy and look bad started to help us realize that, that bits of synchronicity can reinforce kind of the, the lulls in between. And if you're not, if you don't really care, in our case, it's a little bit different. If you don't really care when someone does something, then those little kind of like hooks of synchronicity kind of distributed throughout a, a timeline can be the forcing function for a lot of productivity.
0: Totally. You mentioned accountability, but another thing you, you've thought a lot about, Rishi, is is how to have similar sort of intimacy or empathy, you know, going remote. You started this podcast by talking about how remote your sort of di- digitally presents sort of unique weaknesses and unique strengths. And so I'm I'm curious how you've sort of compromised for the weaknesses such that it's, it's you know, still good enough while also taking advantage of the of the unique strengths that the that the medium provides.
1: Yeah, and 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 think the answer will be very different as we, you know, start as a new service versus over long periods of time. So, you know, one of the favorite things that's been sort of ping ponging around in my head for a couple of years now, as we started future, you know, about two years ago, is that um, I don't know if you guys have any recollection of the first time you heard of the Internet or when the Internet became of first was introduced in our lives. Uh, What's fascinating to me is the very first intuitive use of the Internet for basically everybody, you know, computers everywhere are now connected to a network is like, oh, man, I should be able to now connect with people across the world. Right. That was the first intuitive idea of the Internet that I could harness the intelligence or the um, cultural diversity of people who are like way far away from me. And like benefit from like, you know, collaboration or learning from people all around the, all around the globe. And what's happened in the, you know, convening like 30, 40, 50 years of having the internet is, um, you know, we sort of initially started in some of that way, uh, but pretty quickly got locked into, you know, due to privacy, due to a lot of, you know, factors got locked into using the internet with people we already know in person, right. So you use Instagram and Facebook, you look up local businesses and, and directions. Those are huge uses you know, chat and email predominantly with people you have existing touch points with. Um, And we hadn't really seen mainstream uses of like, totally just meet with a bunch of strangers until the last, say, 10 years. And when we were thinking about starting future and thinking about how do we actually get from where we are as we're starting and we're unknown commodity to this place where we're a part of your life every single day, and we're actually like breeding intimacy and building relationship, um, a bunch of factors went into it. Number one, we said that you need to be predisposed to want to listen to this random person who's been introduced to your life, right? And so Austin mentioned his coach, Jacob. Jacob used to be uh, one of the head strength coaches at the U.S. Olympic Training Center, right? Like pretty amazing, interesting person. He's worked at a bunch of university settings as a strength coach for, you know, um, college athletes. And, and across the board, our coaches pretty much come from either pro sports, D1 athletics, or they're sort of otherwise uh, very interesting and elite. And the reason that kind of makes sense as a starting point is we need someone who you've never met. You need to sort of lean in and you need a, you need some reason to want to say, be vulnerable to them, listen to them, uh, feel accountable to them. Um, now in the, in the, you know, context of a school, it might be that I'm just motivated to want to learn this stuff. And this person has skills or they're an engineer at Google. And I want to like follow in their footsteps. If you can create some predisposition to want to like lean in versus kind of sit back. Um, I think that's one precondition that's required. Uh, the second thing is, um, you know, we talked about the, you know, emergent weaknesses. We can't be there, you know, with you. Um, and what we have to do is compensate for those. And, and what we, the ways we do that in the future is we demonstrate how to do specific movements using audio and video cues. It's actually a relatively good replica of what a coach would do with you in person. Cause there's this audio of like, Hey, as you're working through this movement, focus on X, Y, or Z. Um, and as I think Austin's probably experienced, your coach will actually pipe in specific, even though your workout is async, they'll pipe in specific, um, audio notes for you. You so saw often hear, Hey Rishi, you know, uh, you said your low back was hurting. So during this movement, I want you to, I don't know, brace your core or something like that. Um, and so create these, th- these bits of guidance that we can sort of, you know, light replicate what happens in person. But then what we found is because we can't share experiences with you physically, it's really important that we try to share experiences with you temporally. And so one of the very counterintuitive things, it's like one of our top level, like metrics or, you know, features that we focus on, or there's, I guess, two of them. Number one, how quickly we respond to an incoming text from a customer. And number two, this is kind of the magic moment is when you complete a workout, right? A lot had to go into in terms of your activation energy as a customer to like get yourself to the gym or nowadays, like, you know, get yourself away from your family, like set things up, get a workout in, you're huffing and puffing, your heart's racing. um, You've got, you know, adrenaline pumping and and dopamine response in your brain. It's really important that we catch you like right at that moment and say something specific to you. And we don't say, oh, great job, like nice workout, because, you know, we could have pre-scheduled, like a, a bot could have done that. What we do is we present because, you know, we send you an Apple watch, we present to the coach here's where we think uh, Rishi deviated from those movements or where his form got messy. Here's what his heart rate was doing throughout or if he was doing cardio, mile pacing and, and, and et cetera, et cetera. And what we try to do is follow up with you minutes or seconds after you complete a workout and say, hey man, I see you. And what I see is like, I remember when you couldn't do one pull-up, but now I can actually see you know, with a um, you know, gyroscope accelerometer that you did all 12 and I'm proud of you. Um, and so long way around the point I'm making is, um, we can be there at kind of any time of day, any day of week. And the moments where you're actually extending yourself, we try to meet you as quickly, uh, afterward, um, to kind of share that experience and be specific so we can be sharing it. And we've seen that, you know, the end result of all of this, you know, so our coaches text you daily, they try to meet you at these kind of critical points. They send you workouts weekly after you complete them, they try to follow up. What we found is wild, actually, beyond what we would have imagined when we started the company, which is the average customer, mean or median, looks the same. Trades four text messages every single day with their coach, seven days a week. And if you think about, and it's about fifty-fifty traffic, two messages sent, two receipts. So we're not blowing you up four times. This is like really a two-way conversation. And if you think about the number of people you talk to. Um, you know, on a day-to-day basis, four times a day, every single day, it's not that many people, right? It's like close coworkers, your partner, um, you know, maybe, you know, close friends um, and that's about it. And so, you know, we found that we build this intense intimacy and trust by initially using our expertise to get you to lean forward by sharing experiences with you and being specific and kind of like building some, you know, I think relationships, the currency of relationships are shared experiences, right? Um, And so the more you share experiences with people, the better they'll say, quote, I know you, Eric, and I've played basketball hundreds of times. So I'd say, I know Eric, you know. Um, And, uh, and so what we try to do is share experiences with you temporally. uh, And then over time, what we find is then it becomes a proactive thing, people start reaching out to us. We've seen uh, probably the majority of our customers wanting to make, uh, now that they're sheltering in place, uh, wanting to make changes in, in how they're exercising, you know, buying equipment or, you know, getting a new setup. Um, and the vast majority of them have reached out to their coach and said, what do you think I should do? And, you know, so now we're driving purchasing behavior. Now we're like, um, uh, becoming a, you know, um, a trusted source. And so, so yeah, so that's how we, that's how we thought about building intimacy. And over time it really takes flight with those organic two-way conversations.
0: Yeah. And just for for the record, Rishi is the, the best uh, pickup defensive basketball player in the Bay outside of Draymond Green. <laughs> um,
1: as long as we're calling our own fouls. Yeah, Exactly.
0: <laughs> exactly. Austin, uh, same question, how do you think about compromising for uh, for the uh, inherent weaknesses of the medium but also taking advantages of its uh, emergent strengths
2: Yeah so I think that a lot of a lot of companies a lot of experiences get this wrong by trying to make up for the weaknesses too early. I think what you really should do is double down on the strengths and drive the strengths so much that there's kind of a selection point between people who recognize that the weakness still exists, but that's okay. Um, And then later, after you focus a lot on the strengths, you focus on the weaknesses. So I think one example of that is Amazon, when it started selling stuff online, it wasn't trying to recreate a whole lot of the book buying experience. There wasn't, you know, you couldn't browse, you couldn't smell the pages, you couldn't do all that stuff, but they had so much selection, you kind of didn't care. And so, you know, to to extend that analogy, now they're getting to the point where they can start to work on the weaknesses by, you know, really fast shipping and free returns and, you know, Zappos letting you try things out. Um, I think the right approach is just making the, the strengths so, so strong that people don't care about the weaknesses. So for us, you know, that's, you know, it's completely free upfront. It's entirely online. That accessibility will trump pretty much everything. Like there are people that, physically could not attend the university classroom style setting that are always going to choose Lambda because it's there. And then the, you know, the ability for an instructor to use a breakout room and, you know, with one click move from a class of 200 people to a hundred groups of two, and now you're one-on-one and then, you know, with one more click jump back. And so we've focused much more on all of those things than on recreating all of the aspects of do we have software on your computer that knows what you're doing at any given moment, the same way I might be able to glance over your shoulder. So you, you try to compensate for the weaknesses by doubling down on the strengths. And then once it's really, really strong, then you go back and try to make up for the weaknesses. That's at least that's my viewpoint for, for that's how great. you should tackle
0: it. It's interesting to your point around sort of first principles thinking uh, you, 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 as a bootcamp, but you can imagine if, you know, for, uh, you know, K through 12, I don't even know what they're doing, but they're, they're not going to school right now. Presumably, they're doing some version of it uh, online. Or actually, let's just assume they were for a second. People couldn't, um, you know, check if people were cheating, i.e. checking things on the internet or, you know, checking things with, with other people. And that might encourage us to think from first principles, wait, we actually want to be using the internet to find out, you know, better answers or leveraging, you know, collaborating with people to find answers together. Why do we have this concept of, you know, of, that, it, that it's cheating in the first place?
2: Yeah, super interesting. It's 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 fascinating to watch, you know, most technologies go through that cycle of, you know, skeuomorphism first where you try to replicate what you're doing online. I and mean, it's interesting you look at like you look at the original web pages for the New York Times and it was laid out like it was a newspaper. You know, it was just like constrained, so it was tiny and you couldn't read anything, but it felt exactly like a newspaper. And it took us a long time to figure out, you know, actually the fact that we can throw something online instantly is super meaningful. And now we have Twitter, right? Now it's, you know, it may not be a full article typeset and with graphics the exact same way the New York Times was, was written, but the winners, you know, focus on the, the strengths and focus on now that we have this new thing, now that we have these people in all these different locations that are interacting with each other in real time. What can we do as a result? And you kind of have to break your brain a little bit from thinking about the old way of things uh, to realize what is possible.
1: You know, I uh, I would say there might be some value in that half step though, right? To get consumers comfortable. So you think of like, you know, how the iPhone was like really trying to be skeuomorphic early on and how that gets a whole generation of people who are used to something somewhat comfortable. And then you start to break free of those of those constraints, or you think about how Instagram started with like what, you know, took digital photos and made them look crappier to feel more like photos and then sort of, you know, worked its way back to just kind of beautiful, you know, near lossless sort of, um, you know, uh, and now we just do stories which are completely unfiltered and, and live and, and less edited. So, um, you know, there may be some value in half stepping people into a world and you might've benefited from you know, we we're all built on the, on the backs of what came before. You might've benefited from the direct translation of MOOCs where people are like, that's really interesting. This is a Harvard professor. now I'm not actually getting value from it. And then you come along with something that takes what has come before and, and, and unlocks it a little
0: bit. Does that make sense? Totally. Austin, I'm curious, what is the Lambda philosophy on community building? How do you think about peer-to-peer uh, community, uh, alumni community, the sort of, you know, TA or, or teacher-to-student to uh, community, uh, you know, in sort of a totally digital world? How do you think about that?
2: Yeah, so so the guiding principle for us is that a group of people that are striving toward the same goal has inherently, a, you know, a whole lot of community. The, the thing that I'm most sensitive to is when from a community aspect is when someone either is not aligned or is kind of breaking up that dynamic because it's so, so powerful when you've got, you know, eight students that are putting their lives on the line, trying to move into software. Um, You've got instructors that are doing everything they can to get them there. You've got, you know, a TA that's working with them like that power of, folks being focused in the same direction. And just, you know, after that letting the communication happen somewhat organically has been really powerful. I don't know that I'm, you know, a Reed Hoffman or Mark Zuckerberg style expert on communities in the same way, but for us, it's all about the, the principle of folks being in the same place at the same time, working toward the same goals. Um, and then, you know, random stuff pops up like every, uh, every cohort will have their own, you know, emoji reactions and Slack and all have their own kind of inside jokes and memes and whatever else. So we just kind of let that happen. I'm uh, not necessarily an expert in all of that.
1: Yeah. Do you see actual like, is that, a, is that a driver of completion? Like the more engaged someone is with that, the better they do? Or is it the folks who need it and lean into it benefit from it and the folks who are you know I don't know introverted or something will not require it and are just as successful or is it too early to tell
2: um I would definitely say like that the average student would have quit if it weren't for that community um like it's it's such a powerful staying function that when someone's down or, you know, despondent, they have somebody there to pick them up and there's a, that peer community. I think it's really powerful. I wouldn't pretend like we created that kind of top down. Like a lot of that just happened organically, but
0: yeah, boy, we're glad it's there. Rishi, I'm, I'm curious how you, th- you know, you mentioned the, the coaches are texting every day. How do you sort of instill that, that relationship uh, is, is there, are there times where someone doesn't like their coach and you switch the coach? Like, how, how do you think about making sure a super strong relationship between the, uh, you know, coach and the, uh, person doing exercise?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, we initially, of course, expertise and, and, uh, personality match you with your coach and then give you a few options. So you can kind of look at people's backgrounds and self-select into, um, you know, you're sort of leading into a relationship. Then the first touch point we have is, um, you know, really a FaceTime. So you do a 15, 20 minute FaceTime with your coach where, of course, they do all the things you would expect a coach to do. What are your goals, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But also take time to just think about, like, who are you as a person and what's your setup? You know, initially, the conversation that people have with their coach over text is entirely based around fitness. So it's just, hey, I'm not going to get to this workout today or I had a question about this movement or I didn't enjoy that workout. You know, it's very nuts and bolts fitness-related. What's really fascinating is – our immediacy, our institutional memory, or the coach's memory of you and your details starts to lead to like a little bit of a deeper connection. So what we see is 80% of our customers, 80% end up asking within a month their coach about um, how they're eating. You know, I'm eating like crap. Can you help me with that? And you can imagine that these are people with disposable income. They're paying for a coach on future. There's no shortage of companies that are trying to beat down their door with a thousand dollar CAC to try to like help these people eat healthy. And they can't make nuts, of, you know, heads or, heads or tails of it. And they come, turn to this coach and like, "What do you think?" I already talk to you every day about my health in one regard. Uh, what do you think about this? So, eighty percent ask their coach about you know how they're eating. Fifty uh, percent volunteer to their coach not sleeping enough, and they want help with that. Uh, and forty percent will actually volunteer to their coach. If they're feeling stressed or depressed. And so, I think what happens is our ability to see you and be there and be kind of um, steady in that presence starts to liberate, you know, more information. And, and one of the things that I hear a lot of people ask me about is, you know, so when will you replace the coach with like a fully automated, you've seen, you know, millions of workouts, you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of messages now, like, when are you going to, you know, have seen enough to sort of just like, you know, extricate the person out of the, um, out of the relationship. And I would contend that what you, you don't want to do that, that future will have, it will have a, um, a cosmic limit in the number of people we can serve by, you know, the number of coaches we have, uh, but that we're actually deriving a great advantage from having a person in the loop. Um, And for all the disadvantages, which would be, you know, um, supply constraints and, you know, we have these human limits of how quickly we could respond to you and things we can remember the huge advantage you get when there's a person in the loop is that it liberates a lot more information from the customer. And what I mean by that is imagine like a great self-serve fitness platform, Peloton. Imagine an awesome, you know, AI coach that builds you a plan. You say, here are my constraints, equipment I have, whatever, build you some plan. Um, When you can't work out, which is actually one of the core interactions we have with our customers, is they they say they want to work out and they can't, you would not really have to justify yourself to a computer, right? Um, And you know, you know, humans are great at detecting when they're talking to a bot or something. But when there's another person on the other side and you know that that person's worked hard to build these, these specific bespoke exercise or workouts for you, then you text them and you go, oh, my God, you know, my coach is Curtis. Curtis, I'm so sorry. I'm not going to be able to work out today. We have a board meeting tomorrow. I'm way behind on blah, 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 blah. And now I've just told him a bunch of stuff, right? I've told him that I'm working late and I'm stressed. I've told him that I, uh, I have a board meeting, that I'm some sort of you know executive at a company. Um, and so it, for us, it liberates a lot more context that we can then, um, apply, you know, what we do is try to apply hospitality principles to every you know, interaction with a customer. And one of the great kind of hospitality thinkers in America, Danny Meyer, he he's a very uh, successful restaurateur in New York, um, Shake Shack, 11 Madison park, lots of great restaurants. He says the job of somebody in hospitality is to collect dots and then connect dots. And that's what we're doing as we're interacting with you on a frequent basis, initially about your fitness. And kind of more broadly about your health, what we are doing is listening and watching and remembering what you do for a living, the names of your kids, you know, um, what stresses you out, et cetera, et cetera, and then try to connect those dots later on. And that's where then it becomes a self-fulfilling thing when um, it's pretty unusual experience in this day and age to have somebody who checks in on you on a regular basis and is like, I'm just here for you. And I'm actually like listening and thinking and remembering. And so you know, all, all of that is to say, um, you know, a lot of thought goes into it, And we start by performing, you know, it's not a mistake that we picked fitness because fitness is high frequency. For a lot of people, it's a daily, weekly type of activity. It is high affinity, meaning for, you know, if you had to think about one place to start to service people with their health, there's not a lot of people who are wearing the shirt of their therapist, for example, the t-shirt, right? Um, But people are actually paying fitness brands to wear and rep their brands. Um, And so it's this high affinity, high frequency thing. Um, even if we are a thousand miles away from you, we can empirically see if you're doing it or not. So we can have these meaningful interactions just about fitness, but you know, our responsiveness your, your, our coach's average response time to a text from a customer day or night, seven days a week, Sundays included is uh, 14 minutes. It's wild. Right. And, um, and we build a lot of workflow to enable that, to make that possible. Um, but because you have someone who's there, who's responsive, who's listening, um, who remembers and then collects those dots and connects those dots. It starts to then broaden the scope of the the conversation. And then we sort of build, build from there.
0: How do you, or do you think about any peer to peer, uh, element, you know, Austin, you know, has his coach, you know, Ryan Delk has his coach, Todd Goldberg has his coach. Do you think there's an opportunity for them to build community amongst each other? Or is it like more therapy where it's, you know, it's separate, it's private, you know, How, how do you think about that?
1: Yeah. You know, I'd refer you to Austin's question earlier, which is, um, you know, what is the most distinct thing about your company and how do you just lean into that first? And for us, we give you, unlike pretty much any other fitness solution that exists um, for most people and, and anything digital, we give you a real person. Like, you know, when you do Peloton, it's a one-to-many thing. When you do, you know, streaming workouts, it's you know, sort of a boilerplate thing. And the real unique aspect of future is is literally every movement, every workout, every weight that you're supposed to pick up is designed by a person and a person who knows you and they progressively gets to know you better. Um, and the real world analog for us is, is actually it's personal training. I mean, it's a thing that exists. And you'll actually see that a lot of people will have a personal trainer for years on end, people who can afford it, right? So really rich people or professional athletes. They love these people. They chop it up. They talk about, you know, uh, the vacations they're taking and they hate their boss or whatever the types of little idle chit-chat that happens. They start to build longitudinal relationships. And then, you know, they're inviting that person to their wedding and things like that. Um, And so I think the challenge I issued to our team, and I think we're very very much still in this, is once we can replicate that level of intimacy and connection, then we can go on and tack on lots of great ideas, like community and competition. And like, you know, there are a lot of um, um, kind of obvious things that any fitness company would want to, you know, experiment with. Um, But we think our most unique aspect is there's somebody who sees you whose job it is to kind of, you know, unblock you. Um, and how do we really make that apparent? And so we actually build a lot of subtlety into making that person's presence felt and kind of visceral. Um, and, you know, I mentioned, for example, they'll pipe in specific audio for you during your workout. It's uh, it's kind of a whatever sort of a feature. If you, if you were to design a workout from the, the top down, um, it's not necessarily something that would register. Um, but then when you're actually experiencing it, it gives you a sense for every movement was picked for me. Oh, that's really interesting. So now this entire workout feels very, um, handmade or bespoke. Um, and so we try to help you feel the coach on the other side and then we'll get to those things down the line. It is absurd. Uh, you know, 70% of our customers were referred by an existing customer. That's how we grow. And so everybody basically knows somebody on the platform. Um, and so it'd be very obvious to us to, to go and build a community, but we haven't yet, um, Felt like uh, we've really perfected the, the like the one to one
0: connection. Totally. You know, we've been talking about how to make the the experience better. Of of course, in order for people to have the experience, in the beginning they have to believe that it, that it's worth paying for. Uh, as, and and this is a new experience. What have you learned about even initially just the the sell in terms of convincing people that the digital experience is is just as good, if not better, than uh, than what they're normally getting? You know, Austin, of course, is is offering a, a free program. Uh so there's a uh, you know distinct advantage there. Um Rishi how about you in terms of uh you know convincing people that hey yeah you can get a personal trainer live but you know future is uh, future, future is better. Uh, how do you think about the and just advice for entrepreneurs in general in terms of selling that uh that, that you know digital experience.
1: Yeah and actually I think it would be really interesting to see the flip side of this from Austin which is a free service but they require you to apply and then there's some filter in the opposite direction for you know intent right. Um you know for us um you know, it's a high priced product. It's 150 a month, 149 a month, um, which is, you know, an order of magnitude cheaper than having a real personal trainer who you see multiple times a week, probably a hundred, $150 a session. Um, but still in the world of digital fitness apps, it's about, uh, you know, 10 times more expensive than your average thing. It's probably 10 or 15 times what you pay Netflix for a subscription. Um, and the main finding we had here, I mean, a couple of things, number one, it would be a losing proposition for us to try to sell you an app for 150 a month. What we try to do instead is to help you understand the person who's back there, right? And that you're really, what you're doing is you're getting somebody's time and attention. So, you know, if you are so lucky as to have, I don't know, an assistant or a housekeeper or, you know, people in your life, a so tax person, people in your life who help you kind of with, um, with tasks that you're not you know inherently great at, you don't really look at your housekeeper as a uh, subscription, Right. Uh, you look at them as someone who is you know, great at what they do, who you don't mind inviting into your home, and you probably have some amount of um, interaction and depth to that, um, and then you pay them for the work that they do. And so the first thing is we had to really think about you know, from a top-down perspective, wh- what would it cost for us to deliver an insane high-touch experience? Because it's very easy to build a, quote, online trainer who sends you a plan and is passively there. Uh, we wanted to build something very different, which was high-touch, and we're in your life every day. All of our coaches are employees, and so you become a central part of their life when um, when you subscribe to the service. What would it cost for us to deliver that? Um, and that was the first kind of discussion we had. Historically, you know, digital online training had been tried, and it had been tried at the like the twenty dollars a month price point. And frankly, you get what you pay for. You get an unremarkable coach who responds to you on a 48-hour lag, and it's not really a useful solution. Uh, What we wanted to do, like I said before, was put someone in your life who you want to lean into, someone incredible, and put them truly in your life day-to-day, and that's going to cost some amount of money for us to go and be able to deliver that service. Uh, And then the second thing that we do is we really explain to you as you go and pick a coach, you know, here is, so my coach is uh, Curtis Rayfield. He's based in Wisconsin. Um, Curtis previously was a strength coach for the Golden State Warriors. Before that, for the Oklahoma City Thunder, and before that, for the Chicago Bulls. He has a lot of depth and experience. He's a lot of stories that I want to hear. And for us to really describe you and show you what Curtis looks like, that his average response time is fifteen minutes to any message and question you have, um, and that he'll be there for you every single day, supporting you, pushing you, building you workout plans for five dollars a day, right? For you know, thirty days, five dollars, one hundred fifty dollars. Um, it's become a very understandable proposition to people. Um, and so that's, you know, I would say, how are you explaining that value is a really important, um, you know, piece of the conversation. Um, and we try to help people viscerally feel the person, explore them, their background, see them from multiple angles. Um, it would probably be even better if we could show you a little video of that person or something, um, and then describe how high touch they'll be. Um, and then price hasn't been, um, you know, it's not one of our, our biggest hurdles to date. It's really um, like you said, at the top of the the funnel, explaining to people why a remote coach is valuable and interesting. And it's a new idea. Although as more and more people shelter in place, we're having to explain ourselves less and less.
0: Totally. How about you, Austin, to, to reach your earlier question in terms of uh, how it works on the application side and, and how you think about that?
2: It's pretty interesting. The it, it's not dissimilar actually there are you know how many ways can you learn to code online how many youtube videos are there about learning to code um and similarly we are a, a premium product that's expensive um so the, the way that's been most effective for us to convince people in the past is just get them to try it like you know i assume rishi has some sort of free trial mechanism i actually don't know but yeah giving giving it person a chance to see what it's like to be looking over instructor's shoulder to get your you know assignment graded to be in the class in real time with other students that's usually enough to to tip the scale it just give people a taste
1: so do you do that actually it'd be really interesting if like if you made me apply and complete a an assignment but that assignment was coached by a uh you know a ta and like i actually got a feeling of like the you know, issuing an assignment to 10 people and then I break out, or do you do, do you actually literally let them go through past all of that into starting to learn? And then there's this like non-commitment period. How does the free trial or the, the, the experience work for you? Yeah. So
2: that's something that we're working on and debating internally. Um, in the past it has been basically there's 40 hours of a MOOC pre-course work that you have to do before we even let you in on day one. And then you enter the four week trial period with the full experience. Mm -hmm. Um, We're trying to figure out how we can in the right, you know, we, we get so many applicants. We can't just like put everybody into a class. It would just be sheer chaos. Um, You know, so north of 10,000 students a month are applying. So finding the right balance. So we could let, you know, the 2000 who are most interested get started and then maybe, you know, 300 convert or something like that, or decide to do the full thing. Um, Because even if you're a full-time student with a signed paid income share agreement, or you've paid tuition, you can still drop out anytime in the first month and pay nothing. So we're still trying to figure out the right balance there.
1: Yeah, you're right for us. It's also very um, heavily, like I said, 70% of our customers are referred by somebody else. And so anecdote or explanation is the best way. And then short of that, just trying it. And so similarly for us, we have experimented a lot with letting people, you know, try the service. Um, although that's obviously very expensive for us, we have a real coach who puts in real time to, you know, build workouts for you and and so on and so forth. And so we're experimenting with lots of different ways for how could you get a really visceral sense for this without having to, you know, for us take you four four weeks down the the uh, funnel before we really learn about where you are. It's it's tough.
2: Yeah. If anybody knows a magical way to. Automatically separate people who are going to convert, please. are <laughs> going to be our best students, please let me know. Yeah, right.
1: You know, I actually had a, I have a little bit of a question for Austin, which please. is, you know, uh, I would love to learn just a tiny bit of the genesis of how you started. I actually, I don't even know when you started Lambda School. It's like when that was and how you started it. And my, my question was, at some point, I imagine you were like, all right, education, online, how did you go from that? And probably Eric already knows this story to this is the incarnation. And what I mean by that, and actually you've, you've touched on this a little, which is you, don't, you, you reject the false premise that you have to start with a linear translation of the in-person experience. But the intuitive thing would be like, I should start an online university, you know, and like really all the trappings of a university. And you, you've gone to a more, um, and I know coding schools and boot camps have existed, where I'm driving to, is when we thought about starting something for health, a lot of people, what people do in health is like, well, health is driven by your doctor. So, you know, well-meaning providers and insurers will say, we'll make a doctor available to you or a registered nurse available to you. And like, no one wants to talk to a registered nurse three times a day. You know, it's just like, that's a weird relationship to have. And so we had to start with something that almost looks like a toy. And like the whole health industry, you know, could care less about what we're doing because we look like we're driving some very elective thing. And what happens is we start to help you manage more and more aspects of your health. how how you're taking your meds and dealing with stress and all of these things. And eventually, you know, probably refer you into something clinical. And we had to start with something low stakes that felt safe for someone to opt into, to then build profound relationship to then help you with deeper parts of your health. How does that same thing apply in, in education? How did you end up kind of with the incarnation of education that you're working on versus I don't know what else you considered? Does that question even make sense?
2: Yeah. yeah. So, so I think similarly for us, you know, we started very, very narrow and very low barrier to entry. So, you know, we're not, I think it's a classic mistake of education companies to try to recreate the next Harvard. Like A, Harvard is really difficult. B, you're not going to be better than Harvard at being Harvard really ever. So, you know, we decided that the thing that was really important to us is shifting people's incomes. So how can we change your income? I don't care about how well read you are. I don't care about, you know, you don't have to have read Chaucer at all. We are a sheerly income driven vocational school. Right. And that's all we do. And that's all we care about. You know, now as we get bigger, there are more aspects of, you know, here's how to work with the team or like, here's, you know, how to be collaborative and more of the soft skills. But we we started out very intentionally narrow. Uh, I think we wouldn't have done that. We would have been in for a world of hurt.
1: Yeah. So narrow is like, uh, an intentional choice and you guys were just programming just full time, like as narrow as you could be basically.
2: Yep. And in the beginning we weren't even free upfront. It was just, you know, you'd pay us $10,000 and we'd spend three months teaching you how to code. Now mm-hmm. it's very different. Um, partially because we've had more time, partially because we have more capital and resources and, um, more experience and you know, in the beginning it was it was pretty rough until we brought in the people who were experts in instructional design to actually think about it from the ground up um, in a way that I wouldn't be able to so
1: so yeah, you have an insight there, like what was like a a thing that they shifted that really clicked or unlocked or unlocked?
2: uh just the stuff we've talked about in the past about you know being accountable to somebody reporting to somebody. For for us knowing what you do and don't know and knowing what the delta is between where you are and how we need to get there and then being able to measure it's you know it's very regimented measurable um, for us mm-hmm. and, you know that's that's not a secret to anybody who spent their lives in instructional design but I yeah. was not that person um, so I had to hire that person and now I think we have some of the best instructional designers in the world.
0: Got it. And and was there an insight behind the? Uh, not charging anything up front? Did you originally think maybe some hi- hybrid or um, how'd you think about that?
2: Yeah, so we started out charging you know $10,000 up front for a shorter class. Um, and we, as kind of lead gen, we would teach free classes and we'd have thousands and thousands of people in these free classes. And then we would email everybody and say, hey, why aren't you paying us $10,000? And everybody was saying, hey, I don't have $10,000. That's why I'm trying to learn to code, you idiot. So you start thinking about, you know, how do you solve that chicken and egg problem? And I'd spent a long time in lending. So it felt obvious to me that there's kind of a risk analysis that's happening and there's a portfolio theory that's happening. It's different than, you know, a lot of other risk analysis and portfolio theory, but it's, it's also not at the same time. Like what percentage of students need to be successful and repay in order to make it work? And then how do you work backwards from there into a model so we built a model. It was totally wrong, but you know, it was a model. Um, and then you know, we realized, so we started out by charging $1,000 up front. And then if you got hired, you'd pay us the other $10,000. Um, and then just kind of worked our way down until it was zero up front. And I think there are a lot of schools that still do the $1,000 up front because they need that little bit of skin in the game financially from you. That was just kind of one of our core values is that we didn't want to ha you know charge you three or four thousand dollars on the front end um, because we wanted to be accessible, so it was an order of magnitude more difficult to figure out, but I think it makes the market size an order of magnitude larger
0: so trade offs totally uh, last question and, and bonus question uh, you know we're seeing things like burning man uh, go 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 remote go digital um, is there any sort of either request for experiences or sort of interesting uh, thing that's top of mind for you in terms of you know, this COVID era, what types of digital experiences uh, don't yet exist or don't yet exist at scale that, that should or could or you, or you think are particularly interesting?
2: I'm waiting for somebody to revive Turntable FM. I don't know why that hasn't caught on again. But.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was an all-consuming thing when it existed, yeah. You know, I think a, lo- a lot of people will experiment with um, online everything I think it's going to be the devils in the details here. It's like, how do you actually make this um, feel meaningful and feel like interesting enough to go and 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 use? I'm really interested, and I've been thinking a lot about when you know, and it's really hard to predict when the world opens back up. What is the like? What is the consumer thinking? Right? Are they are they fine to merge right back into uh, gyms and crowded restaurants, or um, is that not going to be as appealing? And so, one of the like retail concepts that we've had for future kind of tucked away and something we've thought about for a long time is, you know, gyms are huge boxes, right? Huge footprints that are located on often kind of outskirts of town or wherever huge pieces of real estate exist. And we've always thought about reimagining a gym as a really small, beautiful, personalized environment. And the advantage of having a small footprint is you can be in very desirable streets and, you know, pay low rent and, um, and still, you know, provide this service. But with a small footprint, imagine walking into a place where maybe only four people can work out at any given time, but when they walk in, they're expected and remembered and they're set up and whatever equipment they need is all available to them and the type of music they listen to because we know what you stream at home when you walk in the place is is known and playing and that was a really interesting idea to us because of because of personalization and we thought that it was a clever way to get to shrink the footprint, get lower rent and then you know go and proliferate this into desirable areas. Uh, but now it's actually sounding like a really interesting idea um, because people don't necessarily want to be like in, you know, body to body or wall to wall with other, you know, people huffing and puffing. Um, and so the one, the, the singular experience or the intimate experience might be more interesting. And so I started to think about like, you know, what would restaurants look like if there was like, you know, one, one party seated at a time, you know, would that be interesting or would that not be, I mean, it's really, you know, challenging, um, you know, you lose some of the aspects of why you go out, but, um, but I think how retail might change when it opens back up is at least an interesting thing to think about.
0: Totally. That's a, a great place to, to wrap. Uh, so in closing, uh, Rishi, can you plug uh future and then, uh, Austin plug uh plug Lambda?
1: Yeah. Future. We pair you with a remote coach and, um, and they're there for you, you know, one-to-one to keep you accountable and, um, get you moving. So Future Fit, and go give it a spin.
2: Lambda School is a live online computer science education that costs nothing until you're hired.
0: Amazing. Awesome. And make sure you follow Austin and uh, and Rishi on Twitter as well. Uh, Guys, it's been a great episode. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thanks, Eric. Great to see you, man.
0: If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.